share with others, and to build his church. In the book of E.M. E.M. Bounds wrote a book and he spoke of the anointing of God. And he said, the anointing without prayer becomes like overkept manna that the Israelites gathered in the desert and that breeds worms. So when God gives you a gift, don't keep it to yourself, but share it with one another. Amen. Thank you, Bob. It's, it's interesting how in God's anointing he pulls things together because it, it speaks a lot to where we're going to be going this morning in, in the message and the word. And, and I'm, a lot of what we're going to be talking about will come from 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. But let me read a couple of passages from another scripture first. And we'll kind of set the set the, the stage, as it were. But you can turn to Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven. But let me start with Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And First Corinthians chapter one, verse twenty-seven, and, and following says, "But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise." God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And then from the scripture that I ask you to look to, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. There was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That kind of goes against human nature, doesn't it? But can you read that, that verse that we have on the screen now? That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, and I believe God is, is, has been just working in my spirit. We've been, Emily and I have been chatting about this. And, and uh, actually, Emily, you can come up because she's going to preach part of this this morning. Is it all right if we kind of team preach? I appreciate Emily. I appreciate her not just because she's smart, but uh, she's got a, a heart for God. And your mom and dad didn't make me do that. But, you know, as, as we, if I can be serious for a moment, you know, I, I again, uh, or try to pull it back. 
God is wanting to say to us that in ourselves it's not possible. Things don't, are not accomplished in the way that we would like them to be many times because we think we can do it. You know, and, and we have been talking for several weeks about the gifts of God and how the God has given us gifts within the body. But I think when we begin to look at the full picture of how these are utilized, we begin to see that we have to look at it in, in a unique way and look at two sides of this concept and this issue. We are singled out as God's special people. You are. I am. We are. People with responsibilities, people with a job to do. Remember when, when he commissioned Adam and he said, uh, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the fowl of the air and over everything that moveth upon the earth. From... Genesis chapter 2, 28. We are special people. I, I don't want us to ever forget that. But we're going to look at both sides here. We are co-laborers. We are royalty. God says whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We are strong. You have been given. We have been given the keys to the kingdom. Matthew sixteen nineteen. Can that be a good place to say Amen. Amen. We have been given keys to the kingdom. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. Romans 16, 20. We are God's gift. We are God's kids and with a marvelous inheritance. But... It's true that we're royalty, but we also have to look at the other element of our relationship with God, and that is that... We're not only in his family, but we're also called to be his servants. Now, we can operate in the knowledge that we have the inheritance waiting for us, and that we have been saved, and that uh, we're heirs of the promise, because that's all true. But we also have an obligation to be servants of God, and we have to see him not just as our king and our father, but also as our master. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that upon salvation we have become slaves to righteousness, and now we have an obligation to do what's right. And in his first letter to the Corinthians, he notes that we've been bought with a price, so we're no longer our own. God desires to bless us. I definitely believe that. But oftentimes, if not all the time, his blessings hinge on our submission to and obedience to his commands. Mm. We aren't just privileged to enjoy his bounty, but we're also obligated to honor the one who gives it to us. And I, that goes for our gifts as well. God bestows many gifts upon us, and he gives them to us freely. And they're great gifts, but even those gifts in and of themselves, I don't think are adequate to help us face the challenges of life, because we have to surrender them back to God. And when we do, when we do submit to God and obey his will, that's when he's able to utilize those gifts in our lives to help us through the things in our lives and use them for his glory. And Emily, as, as we try to balance these two sides, the gifts versus the servant, servanthood, we try to operate, and if we try to operate out of our talents, our gifts, our God-given inheritance and status, we can think we can do anything. That's the man. We can do anything. But as we can think on this, 
And, and we try to work, we, we begin to see that sometimes it doesn't work, even though we can begin to say, I don't need God's help in this. I have it handled. I don't need to bother God on this. It's just a little thing. I can do it. But we can soon find ourselves in, in deep trouble. In deep trouble. And if we have the opposite mindset, sometimes it's no better. Because sometimes we can find ourselves going to the extreme of the other direction and saying that we can't do anything. You know, we use excuses saying, I'm not educated or I'm not talented. I'm not passionate enough or strong enough or knowledgeable enough. And the excuses can go on and on depending on your situation. And on the surface, statements like that may not sound as bad as saying that we don't need God to help us at all. Because they can have an air of humility sounding to them sometimes. You know, they sound like we're not being pre, um, presumptive. But by saying we can't do something, we're effectively saying that God is unable to help us do it. And when we say things like that, it means that we're implying that God isn't sufficient to meet our need. And that really he isn't God in our lives at all. Because God can't be God if we don't think he has the power to help us. So we can see both of these extremes can be dangerous to Christians. Both saying that we can do anything and saying that we can't do anything are dangerous to us. Because when we say either one of those things, it doesn't allow God to work in and through us as he desires. So we see there has to be a middle ground and a balance between the two extremes. And and it seems like then we need to begin to appropriate in our spirits the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. And ask God to renew our minds so we can think in His context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through. And it's such a critical word, church, as we begin to understand how that happens. He wants for us to get into a position... So he can use us. And, and if we think we're, we've got it all up here, or if we think we can't do anything, either, neither one works. God wants to see ourselves, to see ourselves in balance. Perfect strength by perfect weakness. If we get to the point of accepting our weaknesses and getting our heads around the strengths we can have, uh, even when we're weak, we then can have victory in our lives. We are inadequate in and ourselves. We must see ourselves however gifted or however ungifted or untalented we may think. And we begin to see that God wants to use us there. You know, I was thinking of trying to illustrate this as a, in a, a way to kind of picture it. And I, I began to think of the Rolls Royce. And every now and then, Jerry Boyd gets me to, to try to find on my basic channel uh, thing, the Velocity channel. Do any of you ever watch Velocity? And you watch the old car auctions. And they have these Rolls Royces that they try to sell. But even though the Rolls Royce is, is, is very cool, it's very strong, you know, and it, it's, it's expensive, it's handmade and all that stuff, but there's a lot of things it can't do. It can't do. A Rolls Royce can't plow a cornfield. I don't care how much money 
it costs. And nor can a shovel move a mountain. They are not the right device for the task. And, and we have got to begin to understand that we have to surrender our abilities and our inabilities. To be successful in life, you've got to surrender to him your whole life, your body, your soul, your spirit. William Branham, uh, an, a famous evangelist from early 1900s, I think it's 1909 to 1965, this man was a, was a, a, a powerhouse of healing and ministry. And uh, he gave, I was listening to one of his sermons the other day, and, uh, and he reminded me, no offense, because he, he must have come from West Virginia. Because he just had this way of saying things, you know. And, and let me give you a couple quotes. God can achieve his purpose by sending not a revival, brother. What he needs to do first is to send to kill him. That's right. So we can revive. And then he goes on to say, and we'll put it on the screen. You have to die before you can be born again. And you have to, he needs a killing of ourselves. This church needs a killing and me with it. Uh, We need a killing so that we can be revived into a new life, a new hold, a new hope, a new experience. We need first a day of mourning. And we have to kind of put down those things that we think we can do. Because God seems to always choose the nobodies to be his somebodies. When we search back into scripture, we find out that God loves to use the nobodies to become his somebodies. He always took those that the world would reject and the modern age would have rejected. And that's the kind that he'd pick up to use. So let's look at an example of one of these, what we might call nobodies. We'll call him an Old Testament nobody. And his story is found in Judges 6 through 8. And it's a man that I believe most of you are familiar with this morning. And that man is Gideon. Now for those of you who may not be familiar, who may need a refresher, maybe you haven't read his story in a while. Gideon was a man who lived in Israel after they had gone into the promised land, but before the time of the kings. And Israel was living in a time where they were ruled by judges. And at this particular time in history, they, had, they were in the process of being oppressed by an enemy called the Midianites, and they had been oppressed for seven years when the angel of the Lord first came to Gideon. And Gideon was a man who was hiding from the enemy. He wasn't what we would call a warrior kind of person, but he was just one of the nation of Israel that was being oppressed and that was hiding from the enemy. And it's at this point that an angel of the Lord came to him and told him that he would be the one to go deliver Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon protested, and he came up with all these excuses as to why he couldn't do it. I counted last night, I think there's seven or eight different excuses he used to say why he couldn't be the one. But God insisted, and he took him through a process of development. Eventually, Gideon took 300 men and went against the entire army of the Midianites and conquered them. And victory came to Israel, and he was eventually made ruler of the entire nation. So that's Gideon's story in a nutshell, and I just want to look at a few things with you this morning that shows us how God can take Gideon as he was in the beginning, as we might call him a nobody, and turn him into somebody for his glory. So at the beginning of Gideon's story, 
we see as we look at the opening verses of Judges 6, and we're not going to look at all of those today, but as we look at those, we'll see that Gideon was what we might call a nobody by human standards. You know, he was a coward from the enemy. He doubted God. He was afraid of the enemy. It says his clan was the weakest in Israel, and his family was the weakest in that clan, so his family meant had no prestige. Um, he didn't have any talents or special giftings that jump out at us right away, nothing that make us think that he would be a warrior or a leader in any sense of the word. But as we begin to read his story and as we look at his life, we begin to see God take all of Gideon's inabilities and use them for his glory. See those areas that we might consider to be hindrances, God actually saw as opportunities for his power to manifest through Gideon. And while Gideon looked at himself and his life and saw a nobody, God looked at the same life and saw a mighty warrior in the making. Mm. Beginning on the threshing floor, Gideon began the journey of transformation from a man of no ability to a man of incredible ability. However, the transformation was never his doing, but it was always God working through him. And it wasn't an overnight accomplishment either. You know, as soon as the angel of the Lord disappeared from Gideon when he first came to visit him, it wasn't like a switch flipped inside Gideon and suddenly he was this brand new person with all this courage and all this, all this bravery because it didn't happen that way. It wasn't overnight. And actually, if you read the story, you might start to think that Gideon was actually a slow learner because you know, God would give him little things to do and he would be kind of fearful and trepidation. You know, he would go forward with trepidation and, and, and obey God, but maybe not right away. And then later on, he would test God with the fleeces, not once, but twice. He would ask God for signs. And then he would go into battle against the Midianites, um, a battle he'd been promised he would win. And he got to the battle lines and still needed another sign. He still needed another encouragement that God was really going to give him the victory. So we might say he was a pretty slow learner. And his story might not be what we would consider the glamorous story of David and Goliath. You know, or Joshua at Jericho. Or they just went out courageous from the start and conquered their enemies. But in a way, I'm glad it's not. Because I think the story of Gideon and the honesty that it's portrayed with gives us hope, too. Because it shows us that Gideon was just a normal person. You know, he was just a man living in Israel in a difficult time. And God came to him and began to transform him into, from a nobody into a somebody for his glory. Mm. And not once do we ever see God condemn Gideon for, being tre- for his trepidation or his fear. You know, we don't see God um, coming down on him for that. He knew that Gideon was willing to learn and willing to obey. And that was enough for God. That's all he wanted to see. Judges 6.34 brings out an interesting point. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And you have to understand that in the Old Testament, very few men or women are said to have the Holy Spirit come on them. Because the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. It was a very special and sacred and um, unique distinction. And one that you might look at Gideon and say, there's no way he could hold that distinction. It's not for him. He's not, you know, he's not a mighty man in and of himself. But when God saw that he was willing to surrender his inabilities, he was able to allow the Spirit to flow through him. And I think that Gideon, even after his victory over the Midianites, never forgot where he was in the beginning, at the threshing floor. Because after the victory was over, the people came to him, and they were clamoring to make him their judge, and they wanted him to be their leader. And he agreed to, but then he told them that I will not rule over you, nor will my sons rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. You see, he knew where his strength came from whole time. That statement reveals the key to this whole story. He always remembered and recognized that his strength was truly from God, and he never forgot it, no matter how much success he had. God is able to build a character and take our weakness as an opportunity to manifest himself in and through us, and that's exactly what we see happening in the story of Gideon. 
But giving God our inabilities and allowing him to transform them isn't just an Old Testament thing. There's New Testament examples, too. You know, I think of uh, Peter. And when we think of Peter, he was just a rough, tough fisherman, gruff and quick. You know, he, he would quickly do things that weren't really even God things when, when he was getting connected to, to God and becoming a part of his family. And John, an unlearned man, partners with Peter and James in the fishing business. God seemed to bypass the nobles the educated, the priests, the celebrities of those days, and the scholars and the church members, God took the lowly fishermen, the lowly fishermen, and used them. And it's interesting to note that that in this day, in this time, men and boys would come up, and if if they were really sharp in school, they would skim them off the top to to go on for further uh, kind of. Uh, expansion of their leadership and of their responsibilities. But if they didn't reach a certain level of education and if they weren't quite good enough, they were put in the trades. So they put Peter and John and others in the trade of being a fisherman. But God used them. And and he was and Jesus picked those guys the people that weren't quite as fancy, weren't quite as smooth around the edges, and he picked them. And it's interesting, and and I was just noticing as I was reading some of Peter's writings in the New Testament and John's writings, how wonderful and poetic and, and how very creative they are. God used and developed these guys to be able to be marvelous communicators of the gospel. Bible, sometimes we see an odd thing. Because sometimes it seems like God doesn't always just choose the lowly people. Sometimes he seems to choose to use the people who have it pretty good. You know, those with lots of gifts or lots of things going for them. If you look at the life of Moses, you know, he was raised in Pharaoh's household. And he was considered by some to be part of the royal family. Or if you look at Jacob, he was a shrewd businessman. He knew how to how to help make himself wealthy as he was working on Laban's household, and he was able to use some of those strategies to acquire his own wealth. And we look at stories like that and contrast them with Gideon's account or the apostles, and and it just doesn't quite make sense to us because Moses and Jacob weren't what we might call nobodies from the beginning. But if God only uses those who are inadequate, like we've been saying this morning, and only uses those um, who aren't able in and of themselves then how can these men be used of God, too? Because they were able. And I think the answer is simply that they couldn't be used of God until God helped them to realize their weaknesses in their own abilities. You see, God only uses humble people and people who can't be humbled. Because, you see, Moses had a royal upbringing, but then he killed an Egyptian and he spent 40 years in the wilderness where God taught him that he was really a nobody. And then once he had stripped away all his confidence and all his pride in the wilderness, then he was able to bring him back and put him into a place of leadership where he was able to lead the people out of Egypt. But he had to have that wilderness experience first. And Jacob, just a few chapters after we see him prospering in Laban's household, we see him alone at night wrestling with an angel. And in the morning, not only is his name changed, but he'll he'll walk with a limp for the rest of his life to remind him Mm. that God's strength is only in his own weakness. And then, of course, the interesting thing is that after these men were brought down and after they allowed God to humble them, he was able to exalt them again. 
And Moses and Jacob are both legends now in the Old Testament because of what God was able to do through them. But it was only after they surrendered their own abilities and allowed God to use them that he was able to build them up again. But perhaps the best-known example of this is not an Old Testament character, but one in the New Testament. And Pastor Gary, why don't you tell us about it? Thank you. Thank you, Emily. And, you know, when I, I, I look at the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul first, of course. He was a learned man, a man that spoke lots of languages. He was brought up a Pharisee, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the Bible says, and he said... He had authority, he was smart, he was given responsibilities. But listen to Paul after he had this encounter on the Damascus Road. He said, I, brethren, when I come to you, not with excellency of speech, of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. You see, Paul could have come to these Corinthian people as learned as a learned professor. But he said, For I am determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and to him crucified. Abilities are fine, church. Abilities are fine, but they don't have the application in many, many areas of our lives. The Rolls Royce is no good in the cornfield. It's great to be gifted. It's great to get an education. It's, it's great to be learned and to listen. And, and Word of Life is, is, is a marvelous mixture of, of gifts. Oh, you know, we, we started working on a project a while back, and I said, that ceiling is pretty high. And I need to, somebody to get into those tiles. And we have an A-frame with a, a little vertical section. And I know just the man who is gifted right over there, Tom McGuire. He can, it's nothing for him to get on a little ladder 20 feet tall. And, and, and I asked Don, uh, Dean and John and, and Jerry and Dale, all guys in different specialties, gifted people, you see. But, but our gifts are limited when we begin to work in the natural area. They have their limitations. And, and we can come to the point in our lives when we cry out and we say, I've tried, I've tried, but to no avail. But we can almost with the words of uh, Paul say, I was with you and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Can you imagine this Paul guy? coming before the people, and, and even in the fact that he was gifted in many ways, he understood, and he came and came right out in front and told him, I don't come to you as a gifted, learned professor. I was with you in weakness. I was with you in weakness. And, and, and I think, church, as we, we look at these lives and how they operate in this weakness, we understand why Paul said, I operate in weakness. Because Paul didn't want to do anything that would be counter to where God wanted him to go. Where God wanted him to go. And he wanted to speak in such a way that was uh, effective and anointed. 
he knew that if he was going to be God's messenger, he would have to be a messenger in word and power. God's instrument. He would have to function in God's power. I come to you in fear and weakness and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the uh, demonstration of the Spirit and power. You know, as Emily talked about some of the experiences of the Old Testament people and that they would never forget the thrashing floor of Gideon, I think of, of Paul. Paul never forgot the Damascus Road experience. You see, it was at that time when he lost his natural, normal human eyesight. He was spoken to by a voice from heaven. He was led through the streets like a lost blind beggar. Brought to a person he didn't know. But when Paul got his eyesight back, he looked at things differently. He looked at things differently. It was not all about Paul anymore. It was about God and what God wanted to say to the people that he would interact with. He had an encounter with God that he would never, ever forget. Nick, if you'd come to the, to the keyboard, I want to wrap this up and apply it a little bit if I can. Sometimes we can feel like Paul. We can feel like, a, you know, I'm well equipped. I know all of it. And if there's a man in the land that's able to do it, I am. That was the old man. That was the old man. That was the Saul. God took that old man, Saul, and made a new man, Paul. Not not just a man with a new name, but now a man that could function in God's frame, in God's way of thinking. You know, Emily and I have talked, and I appreciate her wisdom. We've talked about two ways to look at life. And sometimes some people are kind of brought down, some people are brought up. But I think God is wanting to say to us, like he said to Moses, like he said to Gideon, early Gideon, who said, I can't do anything. Moses would take things in his own hands. But, but I think God is wanting to say to us that both of those early concepts in those guys' lives were wrong, you see. Our life needs to be focused around Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It might be, church, that this morning some of you are coming against situations that, that you can't deal with. And maybe you caught the problem in that sentence. You can't deal with. 
There are problems in, in your life, perhaps, and in, in my life that, that I can't deal with. Moses found that out, that he couldn't deal with it. Paul Saul found out, Gideon found out, it, it's not the you, it's not about us. We find out there, we can't deal with it, I can't deal with it. You know, Gloria's up in Michigan today, just been for a few days, she'll come back tomorrow. But uh, she texted me this morning and said, Little Jax, um, what was the word for it? Um, it's, it's a little, he is diabetic, my seven-year-old grandson. He's diabetic, and Erica can give me the exact words. But he has a, 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 a patch, a little pump, thank you. He has a pump, and the pump has a tube that comes up and inserts. And what do you call that insertion point? A port. There's the word. But Glory called, texted me in the morning, and she said, "Gary, pray for me. The port fell out, and and my daughter was gone. The port fell out, and even though she had kind of level one training in this, it gets to be we we recognize church that there's so many things in life that we can't do." We cannot do. And she texted me later. It, 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 thank you for praying. I can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. The Valley Church has problems. My goodness. And, and the judge knows well the people that come before him. The crime, the families that are crumbling, the whole big red thing. Schools failing, prostitution, drugs. But Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I see a country church, the country I love. We think we're the United States of America. We can do anything. Just like Moses, early Moses, arrogant and proud. We think we can borrow money to get what we want. We can find money for a million people in Ohio to give cell phones to. Help me with that. I have a hard time getting my head around that. We, we want, we want free abortions. We want free contraceptives. We want to force the churches as a nation. And seemingly, it's a, it's kind of the sense of the nation. It's not just leadership. Seemingly, force churches to to do things that are against their faith. Think that the the nation can define marriage. I see church, a country that. Wants. I want, I want, I want. But they don't want God. They boo God. Help me with that. I'm trying to get my head around. And I, I am a flag waver from, from way back when I was a kid. And I love this nation. But I see these issues that are beyond my control. What can I do? You know, I think uh, 
the Harbinger book, the Isaiah 9-10 movie that's out now that talks about the result of sin. It, it talks about a prophecy that was prophesied for Israel. And, and one could wonder if it applies to America too. And I see many religious leaders are saying, judgment is coming. And if it doesn't directly uh, refer to America, can it apply? But church, I realize I can't do it. And individually we can't do it because it is beyond our control. We operate in a weakness, but, but God understands through our weaknesses, He can be made strong. I believe there are those here that are, it, it may be more personal than national issues, but you have issues in your lives that are way beyond you. They're above your pay grade. You cannot solve them. Uh, and you, there seems to be nothing that you can do. I'd like you just to bow your heads. There are those here that are personally having to deal with something you know that's bigger. It appears like the Midianites that were appearing before Gideon. And Gideon as Emily told us, had no way of solving this in his own strength. He operated in the weakness that God tells us that we can work in. I'm here to tell you, church, God is bigger than the Midianites and bigger than your issues if we can trust him. I'd like the singers to come come up and I'd like us just to sing that one chorus the chorus to the song called the potter's hand sing it Nick take me mold me use me fill me I give 